The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name's Mia, and I'm an assistant producer at the Institute of Art and Ideas. My name's Charlie, and I'm a senior producer and contributing editor at the Institute of Art and Ideas. So today we've got Taking Leave of Reason, featuring award-winning English novelist Joanna Kavena, renowned public intellectual Rory Sutherland, and philosopher and senior lecturer Rebecca Roach. This debate took place in 2023 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the II. So, Charlie, tell us a bit more about this debate. So this debate questions whether rationality is nearly as vital as we thought, and it also questions whether rationality even exists, even though that seems like a supposition that's completely crazy. It actually is something that comes under the topic of debate for a large part of this panel. It also questions the extent to which emotions are important in shaping our rationality and putting our rationality to good use. Sounds fascinating. And before we dive in, just remember that if you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like or subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iei.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, let's hand over to our host for this debate, Bahar Golapur. Most see reason as a vital element in making good decisions. Philosophers from Spinoza and Hegel to Bertrand Russell went further, making logic and reason the key to understanding the world and the primary philosophical tool. But is this a fundamental error? Reason, after all, led them to radically different conclusions. And recent studies show that reason in business and personal relationships does not lead to most successful outcomes, nor does rational economics lead to the greatest entrepreneurial success. Should we abandon the idea that reason is the key either to truth or successful action? Or should we see reason as vital to follow through the consequences of our beliefs? In an increasingly chaotic intellectual age, do we need reason more than ever to contain conflict and misunderstanding? Or is reason no more than a justification for prejudice? Our speakers today are Joanna Kavena, an award-winning writer. In 2013, she was named as one of Granta's best young British novelists. Her latest book explores the dystopian reality of big tech and the digital meshing of humanity and technology. Rebecca Roach is a senior lecturer in philosophy at Royal Holloway, University of London, and host of the Academic Imperfectionist podcast. Her forthcoming book, for fuck's sake, 
Why Swearing is Shocking, Rude, and Fun, is published in November. And Rory Sutherland is a British advertising executive, public intellectual, and the vice chairman of Ogilvy Group. He is also a columnist for The Spectator and the author of Transport for Humans and Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Each of you have two, three minutes to lay out your position on the big idea, should we abandon reason? Yes. Um, uh, this is not the idea that we should abandon uh, reason completely. It's a useful tool. Uh, it's possibly something best deployed after you've had an idea, rather than as a tool to actually arrive at ideas. And I genuinely worry about the, the creative opportunity cost of demanding that everything we try must have good reasons for it in advance of trying it. OK? Uh, I still believe there's a huge role for random experimentation. And a reasonable approach is in danger of saying, unless you have a very good reason for doing something, uh, then uh, there's no case for doing it. Now, my argument is there are far more good ideas out there that you can post-rationalize than there are good ideas you can pre-rationalize. And working in the advertising industry, quite often someone will say, well, that's a great idea, but it's a bit of a, a post-rationalization. And I go, what's wrong with that? You know, penicillin is a post-rationalized discovery, OK? It's an accidental discovery which we then make sense of in hindsight. I'd also notice that um, uh, the whole animal kingdom survives and reproduces perfectly well and seems to make pretty good decisions without the need for a faculty of reason. And there is indeed a theory um, pioneered by, uh, I think it's um, Dan Sperber, two French anthropologists, that we evolved a faculty of reason simply because not to survive or indeed with the intention of making better decisions, that was an accidental byproduct, but simply in order to argue. In other words, in order to either defend our position or to make the case for a position in a social setting. And that as individuals, actually, reason plays a surprisingly small part in our actual decision-making, because what we've evolved is, in a sense, not the mind of a scientist, but the mind of a lawyer. I'd also argue that the requirement to use reason in all decisions actually throws away a large part of human instinct and creativity, which is what makes us uniquely human and, in fact, maybe most valuable. But I'll end, because I've probably hit my three minutes now. Uh, in the course of writing the book, I discovered the most interesting approach to decision-making I've ever heard of, which was that adopted by the ancient Persians, whereas if they had an important topic to debate, such as whether you invaded a neighbouring country, they debate it twice, once when sober and a second time when drunk. <laughs> and only if both opinions agreed would they actually go forth with a course of action, <laughs> which is a beautiful balancing act, which is, does this make logical sense, but also does it chime with what instinctively makes sense? And if both agree, then you proceed, otherwise you don't. That strikes me as probably about the right approach. I'm Persian, that, and that makes, <laughs> that explains a lot. <laughs> and it is a good approach. <laughs> Joanna, what are your thoughts on reason as a key element to success? Thank you. Yes, I mean, obviously, as Rory's saying, it's incredibly important. And if you get on a plane and 
the pilot emerges from the cockpit and says, actually, I'm not a pilot, I'm a novelist, and I've got this crazy imaginative idea about how we're going to get this thing off the ground, you know, you would probably say, I'd like to apply the rational method, or you get off the plane. So I think it's really important. It allows us to do things, intervene in the world. But as Roy's just said, it's also really important to acknowledge it has limits. And actually, within the system of rational thought, there's a massive... Acknowledgement of that you have in the 30s, Girdle's incompleteness theorems, you have Tarski, you have Turing talking about the whole thing problem. So within the rational system, there's an acknowledgement of irrationality, which is a really important paradox, I think. So I think there's a tradition also of thought which is about paradox, which is vitally important. And one paradox I'd like to introduce to this debate is, I think we may be living in it now, a paradox that Arthur Kersler writes about in 1944. He writes about a society in which there are people who can't stop screaming. They can't stop. And everyone thinks they're mad and irrational. But his point is, what, what is the reasonable thing to do in 1944? It's to scream your head off, because the society, the world, has gone completely mad. So I think that further dystopian paradox, that if you're really in a society that's lost its reason, there's a question about... How, how would reason work in that society when the society is unreasonable? And that's kind of the basis of lots of fiction, you know, making a, a case as the stray novelist as well on the panel. Thank you. How about you? Well, you know, what is reason? Um, I mean, reason is a process by which you follow the rules of logical inference to derive conclusions from premises. And whether you... Whether the outcome of that process is any use really depends on the strength of the premises. So it depends, you know, where you start out from. Now, where do you get the premises from? I mean, I think, as Rory was saying, it's, they can't itself be the product of reason. Otherwise, you know, you'd have this infinite regress where you sort of constantly... You have to have a place to start. Um, and in philosophy, often that's, you know, we start out from what we hope are foundational beliefs. So that might mean, you know, if we're reasoning in ethics, a commitment to equality or, or fairness and so on. Um, and, and I think, you know, the reason why you get philosophers disagreeing and, you know, having these very different conceptions of the world is often that they come out with, you know, they start from different premises, a lot of philosophy just involves sort of pointing out where other philosophers have made errors in reasoning, right? So we kind of agree about the rules of inference. So those aren't in dispute, apart from some sort of fringe areas. But, um, but you know, the real, uh, the real test is whether, you, whether you've started out with the right premises. And I think often, you know, sort of how do you know whether you're right or wrong here? I mean, I think something that philosophers often use to work out whether something has gone wrong along the way, you know, through the process of reasoning, is intuition, uh, which isn't a process of reasoning. You know, it might, it might be something that's trained partly by reason, but um, it's kind of gut feeling. So, you know, an example, a, a sort of really common objection to utilitarianism, which is sort of basically the idea that, you know, ethics is about sort of consequences and spreading happiness and, you know, maximizing happiness. Um, you know, a really familiar objection is that, you know, if utilitarianism is correct, then um, it ought to be the right thing to do to kill one healthy person who hasn't done anything wrong and harvest their organs to spread among sort of 10 different people who are going to die if they don't have a transplant. So, you know, according to utilitarianism, right, that's a great thing to do, right? You sort of sacrifice one person, but you save 10. 
Um, but this is sort of generally presented as a problem for utilitarianism. And, and you know, sort of why are we capable of seeing that as a problem? Well, not because of reason, but because of intuition. You know, the thought that, hang on a minute, there's just something very wrong with any ethical theory that allow, that condones this sort of behaviour. Now, so intuition can be this sort of great test about whether reason has sort of come to the, about the right conclusion or whether something has gone wrong somewhere along the way. But also intuition can be a source of bias. So, you know, we sort of go through life with sort of intuitions, listening to our gut feelings, um, you know, being guided by our heart rather than our head. But, you know, often that can lead people to, you know, um, racism, to, you know, sort of prefer people, prefer people and things that are familiar to them rather than, you know, sort of what's, what's unfamiliar. So, um, you know, listening too much to intuition can lead people to sort of fear the unknown, fear the novel, which is not always appropriate. Um, fear people who are sort of not like them in some way. And this can be sort of source of hugely damaging prejudice and so on in society. So I think, you know, sort of we need this, we need intuition to correct us, to correct the path that we've taken through the use of reason. But also we need reason to sort of point out where our intuition is misleading us. So I think, you know, there's this sort of tension, but also this sort of symbiotic relationship between reason and intuition. Thank you. Rebecca, do we know much about the origin of the idea of rationality and its rise to this beacon of human intellectual endeavor, like throughout philosophy? Yeah, I mean, you, you, see, you see reason used, you know, in sort of ancient philosophy. So it's sort of really gone, it's sort of thousands and thousands of years. You see it in sort of Plato and even, even before that. Um, but I think, you know, sort of, over the years, it's, it, you've had this sort of ebb and flow of it, where there was this sort of period of time, you know, pre-enlightenment, so, you know, a few hundred years ago, where there was this idea that, um, I mean, sort of where you, you look at where we are now, and we just accept this idea that knowledge is available to all of us, right? If you have the right training and, you know, sort of access to the right sort of information and so on, then any one of us, if you're smart enough, can arrive at as good knowledge as anybody else. But, you know, a few hundred years ago, there was this thought that there's certain forms of knowledge that are only available to certain people. So people like priests and other religious leaders were um, able to access enlightenments that weren't available to other people. So, you know, it didn't matter how smart you were, you couldn't, there were certain truths that weren't available to you. And then we had this sort of period of enlightenment where, you know, sort of the age of reason, where the thought was that, you know, reason is it's sort of more democratic than that. Um, and sort of philosophers around that period, sort of Descartes, Leibniz, um, people from that sort of era, there was this sort of um, surge in the, the belief that you, know, you could start from nothing, really. I mean, this is what Descartes was doing, sort of let's doubt everything and then use reason to build up from there. So I think, you know, if you're looking back over the years, there's been this sort of, these, these periods of time where sort of reason was sort of really held in high esteem and then it sort of falls out of favour. And I think, you know, sort of more recently, we've sort of, um, you know, when you sort of read news stories about uh, sort of politicians talking about sort of so-called experts, you know, it's almost like we're sort of turning away from reason again, you know, sort of what do they know? Um, so I think, you know, we, we have had this love-hate relationship with reason as a, as a culture over the years. And would you say that it's now, you know, all of the businesses we made is kind of on that system where rational 
Yeah, um, yes, I think there's a I think there's a fundamental problem which probably arose in business with the invention of the spreadsheet. That if you can't make a financial numerical case for something, then however commonsensical it might be, you're not allowed to do it. Okay. And that genuinely worries me. I also think there's an interesting thing in that uh, reason wins arguments very well. Okay, It's a very useful tool for winning arguments. Whether quality of reasoning corresponds and correlates perfectly with quality of outcome is something we ought to debate a bit more. One of the things I think reason, and I think our education system probably encourages this, reason probably encourages us to believe there's a single right answer out there. And so we've been trained to look for an optimum rather than actually looking for as many creative solutions as we possibly can. I have a friend who's an Australian economist called Nicholas Gruen, who, for example, believes that the idea of the trade-off, which is basically permeates the whole of economics, is fundamentally problematic because it stops people looking for magic. There are actually solutions out there which are just wonderful. You know, they work fantastically well. There isn't a trade-off between one thing and another. But nobody's looking for them. And secondly, if you present one, they don't believe you. And I've, I've come across this quite often with very interesting creative solutions. People are uncomfortable with them unless this is treated as an optimization problem. I mean, by the way, what is optimal is a really interesting question, because if you look at the whole science of decision-making under uncertainty, I mean, OK, I work in advertising, OK? Uh, a lot of people would regard people paying a premium for a brand name as being highly irrational, OK? Now, actually, there are a few things going on there that are quite interesting, one of which is reputational game theory. If you're Samsung and you've invested billions of pounds in your reputation, you have much more to lose from selling a bad television than some, one of those weird things on Amazon, you know, which are like a scra Scrabble rack. You know, OK? So actually, understanding reputational skin in the game is actually instinctively very, very shrewd. The second thing is, in making many decisions, what is rational is not optimal, but it's, it, it's uh, variance reduction. In other words, quite often, the rational thing to do is not the best thing to do on average. It's the thing where the worst-case scenario is least catastrophic. And so you actually have to have an argument, really, about um, uh, you know, for, I'll give you a perfect example of this. It'll be very quick now. Uh, you know, when I go to the airport to catch a plane, I ignore my sat-nav. Because my sat-nav is predicated on, on average, based on what it knows, what's the fastest way to get to the airport. My point is, I don't want to miss my plane. So I actually go on back roads where there's more optionality and less chance of total disaster, like the M25 getting closed. And I actually go on a back road because actually the worst case scenario, i.e. missing my plane, is much less likely, even though the average journey time is longer. And I think a lot of human instinct manages, not mathematically, to effectively deal with you know, 10 or 15 incommensurable variables like optionality, variance, et cetera, in making a decision like this, which actually mathematically may be impossible to do. And so that really interests me as well. But I think that idea from which we all get from high school maths that uh, the, there's a right answer and everything else is wrong. And there's a famous quote from Einstein and, and Niels Bohr in conversation where they said, what's strange about physics at the biggest level is that the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. And if I have time at the very end, I'll tell you a story about precisely that. OK. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Reason does um, point to or assumes that there is one single answer and misses the possibilities and doesn't look for magic. And if we 
did just that, you wouldn't have a job as a novelist, <laughs> right? So how that's do you okay. see that? I mean, it's like the world would survive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And the, so I guess I'm saying in this debate that it's incredibly important to have a rational method. You can intervene in the world. This tent stays up. But it will have gaps in what you can do. And I think subjectivity is one massive gap. Um, and the, I guess novels are a lot about subjectivity. And so this idea that humans will often do things for no reason. We buy things for no reason. We fall in love for no reason. There's a really fascinating gap in lots of systems, which is the unpredictability of humans. And if I made a, a rational algorithm of this debate, for example, and I could create a system where nodding equals agreement and folded arms equals disagreement, and I could say 43 units of disagreement <laughs> times 10 units of agreement. But then it might be that someone's folded their arms because that's how they sit normally. It might be someone's nodding because they've completely drifted off and they're nodding in anticipation of their dinner. There's all sorts of massive variables that would then destroy my algorithmic system quite quickly. So I think unforeseen consequences are really important as well. And one thing, speaking to what Rebecca's saying as well about this kind of coercive element sometimes of reason as well, this notion, be reasonable, um, do the reasonable thing, that can be used for a lot of political control. You can get um, this idea you know, that people who disagree with a regime are being unreasonable. And there's a kind of common sense reality that everyone has to participate in, which is actually very political and very ideological. So that's something as well, I think, in terms of the uses, there can be these misuses of that concept. Yeah, that's too, actually... Sorry to interrupt, but that, that is the next theme in this debate. What do we do? The world is becoming more and more chaotic, and abandoning rationality doesn't seem to solve the problems, but... Ah, I'm not sure. OK, great. Um, Tell us. Uh, in that rationality, if you believe this kind of argumentative hypothesis that reason evolved effectively to win arguments, OK, and politics has become absolutely consumed with arguments, OK? What's interesting is I think those arguments cause people to believe that if you disagree about means, therefore you disagree about intent, because there can only be one true path. Do you see what I mean? So if you disagree with my proposed means to a solution, therefore you must disagree and dislike what I'm trying to attain, because there is only one true reasonable path. Actually, what's interesting is if you go to conservatives and you go to people on the left and you go, what kind of country would you like to live in? The answer is actually pretty similar. Okay, you know, you know, generally it comes out as Denmark. I don't know, I don't know why that is. And actually, you know, and probably people on the right would like Denmark with a bit of Texas. Okay, <laughs> right? Okay, but actually, the kind of place they regard as a pleasant, a pleasant environment in which to live isn't actually that different. It's not as if everybody's going, why aren't we more like Somalia, okay? You don't get that. And so I think, actually, a lot of the disagreement in society is created actually by the need to be reasonable rather than actually describing actually common aspirations which are unbelievably similar. And it gets complicated because, actually, Texas is a lot more friendly than Boston, which is wonderfully liberal. So you come across wonderful kind of contrasts in many respects as well. But, but I mean, the point I'm making is that uh, I think the, this idea that if you disagree about the means, therefore you, you are pursuing fundamentally different ends is just wrong from the get-go. Mm. But I, Sorry. Yeah, no, go on. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking, because I was thinking the other day, we're living in this age of flip-out capital. I was mm. thinking there's this whole 
this whole algorithmic system based on monetizing rage, as we all know from the internet. Yeah. And so these companies want to engender these massive flip-outs, huge explosions of anger, and then you can monetize it and attract hits. And so, and the weird thing is, of course, I read a statistic that 80% of journalists, politicians are getting their fundamental news sense, sense of reality from this Twitter um, flip out, and only about 10% of us see this as the representation of reality. So there's a massive disparity, and so and I was thinking, flip out capital. Okay, that's fock. So all our you know people in power are all fucked, and then we need we need reason out capital, which would be rock. We need to sort of rock out, you know, and just think clearly about these arguments rather than yeah, kind of this constant flipping out that is starting to now govern decision-making. It really is that decisions are being made on the basis of total flipping out. So that struck me as that's a real argument for trying to reinstate this more rational process if we can get to it in the midst of all the chaos as you're talking about. It seems like reason can be... You, you can make numerous perfectly logical-seeming arguments for anything. What would that say about you know, logic, is, is that a fundamental error in logic, logical process, or it's a misuse? And I think it's, so, so, you know, as I said at the beginning, it's, logic is a tool. It doesn't give you the premises. It doesn't give you your starting point. And I think something that's coming out here is, you know, when Rory was talking about, you know, sort of what, what society we want to live in, that's, so that starts out with what values do we want to promote? Mm. You know, do we care about equality? Do we care about sort of people helping each other? Do we care about sort of certain, you know, a certain form of community? Now, logic isn't going to give you that. That's, you know, sort of what, what do we care fundamentally about? And then once we've got that in mind, we can kind of apply logic to work in part, right? So that can be one of the tools by which you can work out what sort of structures do we want to build in society in order to help us maximize those values, right? But you don't get the values themselves from logic. Logic just tells you, well, if you start out with this... Premise, yeah. Yes, then, then you can, you know, sort of apply certain tools of reasoning to get the outcome. But, you know, you need that foundation first. Um, and, yeah, that's not something... It would how, be nice. do we, how do we build that foundation? How do we come to those essential values that we are yeah. going to agree on? I think, so this is, this, is a, this is a big question, I think. You know, um, there's, uh, so there's this sort of famous quotation from um, the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, which I, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like, you know, if, if, somebody, um, if somebody comes to me and say that they don't care about a certain value... Um, I mean, that might be something like equality or, or respect or something like that. I mean, that's not what she said. I'm giving you the gist here. Then, you know, I can't reason with you. I, I don't know what to say to you. Um, and this is this common theme, you know, if you disagree about foundational principles, you know, if, you, if you're trying to have an argument with somebody who, who just won't accept that all people are equal in moral status. You know, somebody who wants to claim that some people are more important than others, just sort of at some basic moral level, then, you know, where do you go with that? You can't really reason with them because you don't share a starting point. You know, you can only argue with somebody if you agree on a certain starting point, right? If you don't have that, then logic's no good to you. interesting. I mean, there is that point as well that uh, overuse of reason. I think G.K. Chesterton said, you know, how wonderful to be a reasonable man because you can find a reason for pretty much anything you care to do. 
And I think, you know, you, you can see that in people where effectively people who are just very good at post-rationalizing. And you might argue that our education system is actually almost selecting for that, actually. Mm. You know, the ability to post-rationalize more or less anything. I think that dis difference, there's a, there's a notion, isn't there, which is as well as induction and deduction. I, I'm not a philosopher. There's a thing called abductive reasoning, isn't there, which requires some act of human imagination first. Right, so sort of uh, inference to the best explanation. No, it's kind of, uh, it, it's, it's in other words, where you want to be and you imagine an alternate reality. So there are a lot of, a lot of problems, by the way, with the obsession of reason, which is if you're dealing with the laws of physics, and Hayek made this point, it's kind of... What economics has tried to do, and totally failed to do, I think, is to create the same kind of certainties around predictive models of human behavior that exist in the physical sciences. And you can do that, of course, because the laws of physics don't change. You know, what, you know what's true about gravity in three years' time is pretty much what was true 200 years ago. And so in building space shuttles and aircraft and so forth, that entirely rational numerical approach works. Now, the first problem you have with human behavior is there aren't metrics for most of the things we care about. You know, we don't have SI units for regret, irritation, injustice, etc. And so... This attempt, I think, by economists to create a kind of physics of human behavior was pretty much doomed from the very beginning. Um, but it's also true because, A, the future is, you know, uh, fashion, very simply, OK? You know, what is good today is not necessarily liked tomorrow. People's tastes change, people's preferences change, people's priorities change. And therefore, you have this fundamental problem that if, you, if you're always dealing with big data or past data, you're over-optimized on the past effectively. And I think, you know, that is, that's another serious problem about, uh, um, you know, all big data comes from the same place, the past, and therefore it's fundamentally unrepresentative of what possible futures could be. And in economy, in the past, it was assumed that human behavior is very rational and predictable, yeah. and that's not quite how humans are. And uh, would you like to... No, that's right. I mean, as I was saying, so that that's the absolutely fascinating thing about any attempt to create a perfect model of human behaviour. That, as I said about the the kind of girdling completeness, a notion that you know we we are the sort of gap in any perfect system. In a sense, it's always going to be the unpredictable quality. But I was thinking as well, there's that also that idea that, and I I, I realise that that's that's the thing that subjectivity represents. But I was also I'm really interested in this question. I think it's the sort of Hamlet paradox when Rory was talking as well, that, that you have this idea of someone actually, the tragedy that you often see in, in works of literature is that someone's trying their best to do what they believe to be the right thing and everything works around them to shift the terms of the reality. And that's kind of also what's happening to us when we try to navigate shifting realities online and everything kind of changes and we're not quite sure of the rules of the game that we're being induced to play. And you can see that with Hamlet, that he gets the message from the ghost, you know, I'm your dead dad, go and kill your uncle. And he's constantly trying to reason with this actually really unreasonable set of circumstances, which is that he's in a revenge tragedy and he's got to just kill everyone. But he's trying to make rational decisions. And I think we really have that online, that there's a kind of strange digital paradox that's going on where something's happening that we don't quite understand a lot of the time. We're being denied the ultimate rationality, we're sort of being a bit manoeuvred. And that brings in really interesting questions, I think, in terms of enlightenment notions of the rational 
autonomous human who can make decisions based on knowing everything. In fact, at the moment, with this kind of misinformation, rising uncertainty of the real and unreal actors, I think you're getting a situation where, even if you're trying your utmost, like Hamlet, you can't quite gather all the information you need. There's a massive, strange process that's occluding certain things for various reasons. So I think that's something... It's kind of like we, we're living in a novel without really wanting to live in a novel. It's that sort of odd thing. And so, you know, looking on to the future, how can we fix this situation? Um, you mentioned that animals don't need rationalism, rationality to survive. So we... I mean, there are funny cases in the animal kingdom, actually, where uh, because of interaction between different animals, uh, it pays you to be irrational. Now, one, you know, one of them would be doing the unexpected thing. Okay, if you, it is irrational for you to fight back if attacked by a superior force, but actually, uh, it may be necessary because otherwise, if you're completely rational in terms of uh, where you fight and where you flee. Uh, you'll just get taken advantage of. It's the unpredictable possibility that you may turn disproportionately nasty that keeps you safe, for example. There's a wonderful anthropologist called Jesse Behrens who says, I'm a complete atheist, but when I get into a taxi in a foreign country, I always like to see a few religious icons hanging from the rearview mirror. In, I, I don't believe them, the guy upstairs, but I like to know that my driver believes there's someone watching him. You see? Um, which you do. And there's, there's an awful lot of games here. There's a fascinating thing about hares, uh, which is when they're chased by a dog. You, if you've ever seen it, I'm sorry, I don't want anybody to think I go hair coursing, but if you've seen it on YouTube, okay, just to be clear, um, the hare will basically just leap around at random, su suddenly jump in the air, then it'll take a violent left. The hare actually has no control over this. The brain enters apparently a kind of random number generator. And the hare doesn't even know itself what it's going to be doing. And the reason for that is if the hare did know, it would give away telltale signs that it was about to turn left. Dogs would have evolved the facility to read these signs, and the hares wouldn't escape. So there are certain cases where actually behaving at random is actually rational, for example. All of this stuff arises. And the other one I always mention in sort of advertising and marketing, I always consider consumer capitalism as the kind of, even if you don't like it, OK, it's the kind of Galapagos islands of human behavior. Okay, and the fact that, of course, one of the dangers of being rational is that you tend to end up in the same place as all your competitors. And the thing that I continually notice with really successful businesses is they contain an element of complete absurdity. So, you know, before Dyson brought out his vacuum cleaner, there was no rational argument for believing there was a market for an 800-pound vacuum cleaner. Okay, I could have given you 15 reasons why it was daft. And I always say, you know, if you'd given a lot of rational people the job of coming up with a competitor to Coca-Cola, they would have said, well, we need a really nice tasting drink that costs less than Coke and comes in a really big container. But the biggest success in competing with Coke is Red Bull, which costs a fortune, comes in a tiny can and tastes disgusting. Okay? <laughs> so so th there is, of course, it's worth noting that the, if life is to some extent a game of poker, there is this question of do I do what's sensible, which everybody else does, or actually, when I do something silly, if I do succeed, the gains will then be disproportionate. And, and deciding between those two is, is not something I think you can make rationally, in a way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying it sort of reminds me of uh, Thomas Kuhn's uh, conception of how science works, that it proceeds by um, revolution. 
Um, so, you know, the, the, there's this idea that sort of science is just it's sort of completely guided by reason. But of course, you get these these occurrences in science where sort of everybody will be adhering to, you know, what, what Kuhn would call the, the paradigm. So the, a set of assumptions that yes. sort of grounds discoveries. And then over time, you'll sort of discover problems or sort of things that can't be explained. And then there'll be a revolution, which is kind of like, let's just reject all the foundational assumptions we were starting with and, and um, replace it with something else. So, you know, example might be the replacement of Newtonian mechanics with the quantum worldview. So the idea is that, I mean, that's not rational. That's because the sort of rational part of that is what, what's, you know, what he calls normal science when you're sort of working within the sort of non-revolutionary part, where you're just sort of deriving new discoveries from these sort of foundational assumptions, which takes you so far, but, you know, it doesn't describe the world perfectly. And then when you realize you, you kind of, you've, that there are things that you really can't explain anymore, then you have to kind of just chuck everything out and sort of get a new set of assumptions. And I think, you know, sort of what you're saying there reminds me of that, where you've got this sort of period of time, so, you know, sort of Coke is sort of, okay, based on what we know, what yes. is the next logical step? And then occasionally there'll be sort of something happening that comes out of left field. And, and that's, you know, that's not logic, that's the sort of creative, a new, yeah. a new idea that doesn't come from logic, but then that sort of demonstrates the limitations that we're working on. Or someone with, simply right? noticed, I mean, an awful lot of discovery is not intentional, it's scientists noticing something. Mm, mm. Uh, penicillin being the most famous example. Mm. The microwave oven came out of a, um, uh, a scientist working on radiation, uh, some form of radiation, who noticed that the, the chocolate bar in his pocket kept melting. Okay. <laughs> and I always love the story from business, which is the Wolves Vionetta um, came about because there was a faulty conveyor belt in the factory, which caused what should have been a flat slab of ice cream to come out in the shape of scroll work. And again, it was an act of observation. Hey, that looks great, you know. And actually, I'm not sure you'd get there intentionally ever. You know, I don't, I'm not sure it's something, it's, I'm not sure it's a request stop. You know, it's, so much of this stuff is actually someone with the right mindset simply observing happy accidents or whatever it may be. And you, you can't really attribute those successes to reason, can you? It's so true. And the whole thing of serendipity, you know, it, it, we all walk around now and we're kind of guided, you know, by our Google device and so on. But that, I was thinking of all the encounters everyone had through total serendipity. Do you remember? And you'd sort of yeah. go out and you'd just meet a series of people and you'd end up sort of, you know, married to one of them just by these random sort of sequences that would happen. So that thing as well. I was thinking as well as you were talking about science. Um, there's a short story by Borges called Exactitude in Science, and it's, it's this idea that the scientists of this great empire wanted to make these maps that corresponded completely to the reality, totally point-to-point point in every element. And so in the end, they had to create these maps that were as big as the reality. They're enormous, you know, massive, <laughs> reality-sized pieces of paper. And of course, they couldn't work at all as maps. You know, you just got in the way and no one could live in their houses. And so they had to just abandon them. So that idea that if you push a rational idea to a really, really extraordinary <laughs> extreme, you end up with quite the opposite of what you wanted. And actually, on, you know, we all have predictive text as well. And I don't know what's going on with that, because it predicts the most totally preposterous yes. thing. I mean, well, this isn't preposterous, actually, but the other day I was trying to type in fiction, and it, my phone predicted it as big ruin, which I thought, OK, that, what, is, what is the phone trying to tell me? But this sort of why it has, you know... <laughs> 
Why has anyone ever put that in? And the notion of who, what is the algorithm that predicts the most preposterous and unpredictable things that we're about to type? What's going on there? I also think there's a danger, which is when we obsess about what you might call the intentionality of progress, is we only measure in the positive column those things that our idea achieves that were intended beforehand. Because quite a, lot of, you know, quite a lot of interesting ideas have unintended consequences, which are sometimes very, very negative. But they're sometimes very, very positive. So, I mean, your example of serendipity in meeting, I always joke, when I had teenage daughters, what my daughters did not have, OK, was a party strategy, OK? Basically, all they knew was that when you go to parties, you increase your... This is sort of Nassim Taleb talk. You increase your surface area exposure to positive upside optionality. You see, OK? Now, you don't know... You don't, it's completely fallacious to go to a party with an intention of what the value you're going to derive is from that party. All you know is that if you never go to a party, you never get lucky, effectively, OK? And what that luck could be, you don't actually define in advance. You simply go, the, the, the reason it's worthwhile doing this thing is because shit might happen that I never anticipated that I subsequently come to value. And so that worries me about a lot of, sort of business planning. I think there is scope for just saying, we're going to try two or three random things to see what the outcome is. Uh, and it's very difficult to do, because the finance people, it's much, much easier to quantify a cost than it is to quantify an opportunity cost. And so that very sort of accounts-driven, finance-driven approach to activity effectively just leads to cost-cutting as a default behaviour. It's like the apocalypse of star rating, isn't it, where everything can be star rated and you start to think, what, you know, I star rate, you know, the birth of my first child. Well, I think that was, a, you know, the kind of what else are you going to star rate? The sort of, you know, my existential crisis is sort of hanging at kind of <laughs> 1.5, I think. You know, that kind of the absolute impossibility of almost everything we really care about being surrendered to a star rating, I think. I actually see an interesting parallel between what you said about... Um, the progress of science. So following that system, we usually have a lot of success until we hit the wall. And then we see, oh, okay, there's a, we need a new paradigm. And it feels like what you were describing about um, the online world is kind of in that situation, it's, it's looking like it's hitting a wall and we need to sit back and instead of trying to compare these opposite arguments, maybe think of new arguments? Yeah, I want to hear what Rebecca thinks in terms of actually civil, you know, the kind of, is it ever rational to be totally uncivilised online in terms of swearing or, you know, kind of fits your work on? I was thinking about that when, yeah, well, I was thinking about the online world, do we ever just, should we ever just fully flip out? I mean, I was making an yeah. argument against flip out capitalism. But. Well, I mean, something that springs to mind here is... Um, a while ago, I can't remember who did this study, but the sort of psychologists wanted to look at how or, or whether psychopaths were capable of moral reasoning. Um, you know, it's sort of it's, it's generally thought this is something that psychopaths don't do well in. Right? They don't sort of have empathy. They, 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 they don't sort of have any sort of feel for for, for wrong, right, and injustice. Um, and they found out that, that psychopaths were really, really good utilitarians. So you know, utilitarianism just gives you this sort of almost like this formula to follow, you just maximise happiness and you minimise 
sadness, and that kind of guides your action. And, you know, most of us are not natural utilitarians because it would mean things like, you know, you sort of, we tend to sort of love our children more than just random strangers, right? But sort of utilitarianism would have us, you know, give everybody equal weight. Um, and psychopaths are really good at that. But, you know, the way that comes across to the rest of us is that there's something really cold and inhuman about yeah. that. I mean, we don't want too much partiality for the people we love because then that leads to sort of cronyism and nepotism and all the rest of it. But also we don't want this just sort of cold, calculating thing where, you know, you kind of go to hospital to visit a relative and you just end up sort of, OK, well, I'll visit my relative, but I'm also going to visit every sick stranger for the same amount of time. I mean, that, that's sort of robotic, right? Yeah. So if you have too much reason you sort of lose humanity right there's sort of this there's, there's a coldness about it there's an interesting question in experimental philosophy isn't there which is your children are behind one door and there are 50 random children behind another door and the building is on fire and you could only open one door which is a really, really easy question to answer until you have kids, yeah. which is a really interesting one. Yeah. You know, because yeah. actually, you know, anybody without children would go, well, this is an absolutely simple calculation. I can't, right, even, right. can't even believe we're debating this. Yeah. But once you have children, you actually go, you know, have to be But I think that, you know, that, that the psychopath question is very interesting because they, they, they do exactly perform that calculus. Mm. Mm. And um, we don't like them for it. And we think you shouldn't need it, right? That if no. you have to, if, if, you, if you're trying to work out what the right thing to do is, and the only way you can do it is by reflecting on what the rules are. You know, if you lack any intuitive sense for injustice and, and empathy and so on, then, there, then there's something wrong. Right. Mm. I also think superfluity is really important as well. The kind of things that don't fit within the system are seen as extraneous to the system. Because again, in a way, a lot of the things we really care about could be extraneous to any system, you know, and you sort of think, I, I was, again, in terms of the revolutions you talked about as well, you see that a lot with, in art, you have someone like Oscar Wilde reacting against the idea that art should be really purposeful and reasonable and should have a proper social function. And he just says, all art is quite useless. Meaning, I mean, he obviously thinks it's fantastically useless, useful because he's an artist and he loves it. But he's also saying it shouldn't have to have this programmatic, completely certain purpose. And we can calibrate it, as you were saying, that there are some things that are really vitally important that are just superfluous and as King Lear says you know our basis beggars in there I love this conversation but uh, we're out of time so I'm going to make a conclusion so far um, looks like we're still in the progress of finding the balance and limits of reason and life is a lot more magical full of possibilities if we don't always act rational thank you, thank you so much Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice. And visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. And don't forget to check out Is Rationality a Fiction, which was an article written exactly on this topic.